Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of American Biography is brought to you by you. That is, it can be. If you choose to join the ranks of sustaining patrons that have pledged to support the podcast by subscribing to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash A-M-B-I-O. In exchange for helping to keep the show going, you'll be eligible for exclusive patron-only episodes and get your own snarky, silly, or funny spoil system patronage job title. So please consider signing up to become part of the spoil system by going to www.patreon.com forward slash ambio. And please make sure you stay tuned at the end of today's episode to hear the job titles the other patrons have already come up with. Thanks again, and now on with the show. Hello, and welcome back to American Biography, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. This is the life of John Marshall, episode 28, Cousin Tom. Well, it's been a while, but I'm back, and today we have a special episode outside the chronological narrative. As I'd mentioned in episode 27, John Marshall's great antagonist for most of our preceding episodes, the author of the Declaration of Independence, Governor of Virginia, First Secretary of State, Second Vice President, and Third President of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, was retiring. He was gifted a watch, his co-workers had a cake for him in the break room, they sang for He's a Jolly Good Fellow. It was nice. But before he rides off into the sunset, I thought we'd want to focus in on these two men one last time and consider the fateful rivalry of Thomas Jefferson and John Marshall. Right out of the gate, let's have some fun with genealogy. Now I have to admit, I took some liberties with the title of this episode. Marshall and Jefferson were related, but were not in any way as closely related as first cousins, which is to say someone with whom you share a common grandparent. Marshall and Jefferson's last shared relative was William Randolph of Turkey Island, who we mentioned all the way back in episode one. He and his wife, Mary Isham, earned the nickname the Adam and Eve of Virginia. And you know, as far as nicknames go, it kind of holds up. These two had nine children, but the only two who are important to us right now are Thomas Randolph of Tuckahoe and Isham Randolph 
of Dungeness, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong, so any Virginians out there listening, please let me know. Now, Thomas Randolph of Tuckahoe's daughter, Mary, married an itinerant reverend named James Keith, which caused quite a scandal. But you can go back to episode one for a refresher on that if you don't recall the details. For our purposes here, we only need to know that one of their eight children was Mary Randolph Keith, who was John Marshall's mother. This makes William Randolph John Marshall's great-great-grandfather. On the other hand, Isham Randolph of Dungeness and his wife Jane Rogers had nine children, including Jane Randolph, who married a fella named Peter Jefferson, and spoiler alert, these two begot Thomas Jefferson. Therefore, William Randolph is Tom's great-grandfather. So this makes Jefferson and Marshall third cousins once removed. Historian Gordon Wood has said that if there were an American Plutarch to write the parallel lives of these two, the story would be rich in ironies, and its theme might well be the mysterious repulsive forces of likeness. And many of the similarities are easy to see. Both Jefferson and Marshall's mothers were descendant from the powerful Randolph clan, each married men that could be considered socially beneath them. Thomas Marshall and Peter Jefferson, their fathers, were remarkably similar in their own right. They were social climbers who married up. Neither had received much of a formal education, and both were self-made men who found work as surveyors in the employ of Lord Fairfax. Both accumulated land over time, and both placed great importance on their children's educations. While we talked about John Marshall's childhood in our early episodes, a significant divergence in John and Jefferson's lives occurs when another William Randolph, the then current master of the plantation at Tuckahoe, died in 1745, naming Peter Jefferson as executor of his estate and the guardian of his young children. The Jefferson family promptly moved with young Thomas to Tuckahoe, where the future sage of Monticello received the significant benefit of being raised and educated among the Randolph children, surrounded by wealth and the type of refinement young Marshall could only have dreamed about. I've seen the question raised in the sources that perhaps part of the later coolness between Marshall and Jefferson stemmed from the scandal, and I'm using air quotes here, surrounding John's mother's parentage. Certainly growing up at Tuckahoe, where Marshall's grandma had been born, Jefferson could have been aware of the stories of James and Mary Randolph Keith. But we don't know that he did, and if he did know, we can't be sure that he cared. What I find more plausible could have been due to the fact that 1. they were really rather distantly related, and 2. they were also vastly different ages. Jefferson was 12 years older than Marshall. I mean, how close are you to your first cousin who's 12 years older, or younger than you? Have you ever spoken to your third cousin once removed? Have you ever even checked to see if you have a third cousin once removed? What if you did and found that your third cousin once removed was over a decade older than you? Would you have the uncontrollable urge to reach out to them and make them your new BFF? Probably not. I haven't actually been able to find any real interaction between the two Virginians until 1780, when the 37-year-old Jefferson, then governor, signed the 24-year-old Marshall's attorney's license. At this point, there's no obvious source of tension between them, though to be fair, John had yet to resign from the army 
so he hadn't really had the opportunity to do much in order to earn Jefferson's disapproval. So here I think there's a reasonable explanation as to why the two founding fathers weren't close despite their familial ties. But this doesn't explain the intense animosity they felt towards one another. Their relationship, to the extent that there was one, was uneasy at best. But as we've seen over and over again in the narrative, even honest disagreement could easily take on a more acrimonious and contentious character. And dramatic episodes such as the Marbury case, Chase's impeachment trial, or the Burr trial further fed into the cycle of rancor, distrust, and resentment. Before 1800, both Jefferson and Marshall had fought in their own way for independence. Marshall may have done so with a musket, while Jefferson did so with a pen, but there was no doubt they were both passionate advocates of the cause. Perhaps we could theorize that since Jefferson wasn't involved in the creation of the U.S. Constitution and voiced reservations about it while Marshall reverenced it, this could somehow explain their falling out. Well, since Marshall was working hand-in-hand with Madison in 1788 to secure ratification for the new government, and whereas Jefferson and Madison remained close friends and allies for decades afterwards, notwithstanding Jefferson's criticism of the Constitution Madison had sort of designed, it's actually rather hard to imagine that this would be the source of contention between John and Thomas. But following ratification... The birth of the first party system plays a huge factor in ratcheting up the tensions amidst the founding generation, which was split into rival camps. And here, I think we're getting closer to the mark. One of the main wedge issues, and one of the clearest indications of which side of the partisan divide you stood on, was how you felt about the French Revolution and whether you supported the French or the British in the fighting which followed. With this, we might be getting somewhere. Because, as Albert Beveridge points out, Jefferson was as hostile as Marshall was friendly to Great Britain, and they held exactly the opposite sentiments towards France. In the British, Jefferson saw the antithesis of the democratic reforms he championed for America. Conversely, in revolutionary France, he saw the flames of liberty kindling anew, and sympathized with that newborn republic beset on all sides by hostile monarchies. To Marshall's mind, Britain was a beacon of order and judicious liberty, particularly after the execution of Louis XVI and the reign of terror which followed, as the French Revolution began to, like Saturn, devour its own children. Marshall also believed that Jefferson's French bias disqualified him as a presidential candidate, but Jefferson's Francophilia is much easier to explain than Marshall's Anglophilia. The great llama of the Little Mountain, as Marshall sometimes derisively called Thomas in private, had flourished in France, and one can make a reasonable argument that the heady years Jefferson spent there mingling with the enlightened nobles in the salons of Paris were among the happiest of his life. Conversely, Marshall's time in Paris, dominated by the XYZ affair, was a negative enough experience that later in life he preferred the British over the French even though the former had actually shot at him during the Revolutionary War. But in the early 19th century, one's international outlook was intimately tied to one's domestic politics as well. And as historian Gordon Wood points out, both Jefferson and Marshall, each in his fashion, favored strong national government, but the fashion mattered. In his own way, Jefferson gave a nod to this sentiment 
in his first inaugural address when he said, We have called by different names brethren of the same principle. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. Unfortunately, while Jefferson in the abstract could often be an enlightened democratic theorist, in private he was often shrill and petty, and his correspondence is riddled with the imagined conspiracies he thought he saw in all of his opponents' actions. One example of the kind of cold fish Jefferson could be was his treatment of his friend-turned-rival John Adams. During the heat of the election of 1800, Jefferson paid agents, such as James Callender, to savage Adams in newspapers, calling him, in one instance, a blind, bald, crippled, toothless man who is a hideous hermaphroditic character with neither the force and fitness of a man nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman. And many believe that Jefferson's true hatred was reserved for Alexander Hamilton. He saw the Hamiltonian economic program as the snake in the Garden of Eden, and Hamilton himself as the great corrupter, who was chained by native partialities to everything English, and who had formed exaggerated ideas of the superior perfection of the English Constitution. He saw Hamilton as a force unto himself and declared him the colossus of the anti-Republican Party. But still, things get a little weird here. You see, when Hamilton should clearly be Jefferson's most powerful and important enemy, between 1789 and 1795, Marshall holds no public office at all. But the popular and able Virginia Federalist was still so deep in Jefferson's headspace that in 1792 he wrote, I learned that Hamilton has expressed the strongest desire that Marshall should come into Congress from Richmond, declaring, There is no man in Virginia whom he so much wishes to see there, and I am told that Marshall has expressed half a mind to come. Hence I conclude that Hamilton has plied him well with flattery and solicitation, and I think nothing better could be done than to make him a judge. Setting aside the irony of this statement, given the grief Marshall would go on to give Jefferson as a judge in the future, it's sort of mind-boggling that Thomas is thinking of John at all at this early date. In 1800, after Marshall had been an influential man in the House of Representatives and had served as Secretary of State, this focus may have made more sense, especially since Hamilton was out of government by that point. But in 1800, you'd have thought Jefferson should have been more focused on the presidential campaign and on John Adams. But here you'd be wrong, because in letters to Monroe, he lamented the specter of federalism and martialism, writing, the latter spirit, nothing should be spared to eradicate. His animosity towards Marshall is even more acute following the Marbury case, when he wrote a very testy letter to Abigail Adams, stating, I can say with truth that one act of Mr. Adams's life, and one only, ever gave me a moment's personal displeasure. I did consider his last appointments to the office as personally unkind. They were from among my most ardent political enemies, from whom no faithful cooperation could ever be expected, and laid me under the embarrassment of acting through men whose views were to defeat mine, or to encounter the odium of putting others in their places. Now this is clearly a direct reference to John Marshall and the Midnight Judges, which, on a side note I'll point out, is a pretty great band name. Hold up. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, I don't want to give the impression that irrational hatred was only moving in one direction. Marshall gave as good as he got. Henry Adams wrote, John Marshall was a very great man, but that this great man nourishes one weakness. He detested Thomas Jefferson, and no argument affected his conviction that Jefferson was not an honest man. Marshall, who was famously friendly and easygoing never forgave Jefferson for slandering his hero, George Washington, during the controversy over the Jay Treaty in 1794, when it got out that Jefferson had referred to the president as Samson, whose head had been shorn by the harlot England. So even in 1800, when Hamilton was begging John to support Jefferson over Burr after the presidential contest was thrown into the House of Representatives, Marshall said he didn't know Burr and agreed that Hamilton's description of him was pretty bad, but he just couldn't do it because his objections to a Jefferson presidency were insuperable. Marshall felt that Jefferson would not act as an independent executive in charge of one branch of government, but would rather behave as a popular party leader and extend his control over the two branches of government that his party dominated. He feared, rather than use the presidency to act as a bulwark against the popular passions of the masses, Thomas would exploit the prejudices and ignorance of the common people to achieve his own ends. John believed Jefferson's conception of democracy was antagonistic to orderly government. He believed Jefferson was a demagogue whose influence would be destructive to the nation, and he believed that beneath the image of an unambitious country gentleman that Jefferson had so carefully cultivated, there lie an unscrupulous and able politician. In the interest of fairness, I want to point out that Marshall biographer Gene Smith views Jefferson differently and more kindly than I do. He sees him as a curb to the more radical impulses of the Congressional Republicans, 
and believes that Marshall's fears about Jefferson were unfounded and were the result of his lack of understanding of the internal divisions amongst the Republican caucus. Therefore, Marshall couldn't appreciate Jefferson's efforts to rein in radicals of his own party, and this often led him to misattribute many extreme positions held by other Republicans erroneously to Thomas. But even if you agree with this interpretation, misunderstandings clearly flowed both ways, and as both men moved to the heads of their respective branches of government, the conflicts of their institutional prerogatives exacerbated rather than eased their personal tensions. So perhaps Marshall misinterpreted the role Jefferson played in the internal politics of the Republican Party. But Jefferson was wholly unable to grasp Marshall's reforms to establish a functionally independent, less political judiciary. He always viewed Marshall as some sort of threat. This view trickled down even to less substantial things. Jefferson couldn't even credit Marshall's biography of George Washington as anything other than an attempt to poison the public mind and gain a passport to posterity. Hell, Jefferson even viewed Marshall's visit to his dying father in Kentucky as a secret political mission. The truth is, their divisions ran marrow deep. Their very conception of what the Constitution meant were at odds, and it wasn't the kind of gulf that could be papered over with polite compromises. Marshall was a centralizer, and for over 35 years on the court, as Gordon S. Wood writes, he used the Constitution's supremacy and necessary and proper clauses to assert a sprawling conception of federal power through his superhuman powers of trenchant argument. And Marshall's prolixity in argument really was that great. No matter what you think of Jefferson, he was not stupid. And yet, to Joseph Story, he'd write, when conversing with Marshall, I never admit anything. So sure as you admit any position to be good, no matter how remote from the conclusion he seeks to establish, you are gone. So great is his sophistry, you must never give him an affirmative answer, or you will be forced to grant his conclusion. Why, if he were to ask me if it were daylight or not, I'd reply, Sir, I don't know. I can't tell. In an 1810 letter to then-President Madison, Jefferson referred to this phenomenon as Marshall's twistifications and decried how dexterously Marshall could reconcile law to his own personal biases. It was clear that Jefferson felt Marshall had delivered some of the most stinging political defeats he'd ever suffered. In an 1823 letter to William Johnson of South Carolina, Jefferson is still complaining about the Marbury decision, writing, The practice of Judge Marshall of traveling out of his case to prescribe what the law would be in a moot case, not before the court, is very irregular and very censurable. Laws are made for men of ordinary understanding, and should therefore be construed by the ordinary rule of common sense. Their meaning is not to be sought for in the metaphysical subtleties, which may make anything mean everything or nothing at pleasure." But this goes deeper than Jefferson not liking Marshall's habits and opinions. We're drilling down into bedrock here. Marshall and Jefferson both believed that the people were sovereign, but that seed of truth germinated very differently in each of their minds. Jefferson believed in the supremacy of the legislative branch within the federal government, as it was more directly connected to the people's will. Relatedly, he favored the individual state's power in relation to the federal government because of their nearer proximity to the people. 
and for him this led to two unique philosophical quirks for Jefferson. One was that within the federal government, he believed that no single branch should be the final arbiter of the Constitution. He thought each branch should be entitled to float, I guess I'll call them advisory opinions about the constitutionality of this or that as issues arose, but the other branches didn't need to be bound by them. Disagreements presumably would get hashed out over time, somehow. The second quirk of Jefferson's constitutional philosophy was that he believed that the Union was a compact among sovereign states, and that they should have the right to weigh in on constitutional questions also. He felt the Tenth Amendment supported this view by reserving all powers not expressly granted to the federal government by the Constitution to the states. For him, it therefore logically followed that as a defense mechanism, the states should have the power to ignore federal laws they felt encroached upon their sovereign prerogatives. And this idea was the basis for Jefferson's Kentucky Resolutions, which he wrote in 1798. You'll notice in this view, there is relatively little role for the courts to play in constitutional disagreements. Ultimately, Jefferson felt that these needed to be corrected by constitutional amendment. Jefferson drives this point home in that same 1823 letter to Johnson that I mentioned before, where he also writes, The Chief Justice says there must be an ultimate arbiter somewhere. True, there must, but does that prove it is either party? The ultimate arbiter is the people of the Union, assembled in their deputies in convention and at the call of Congress, or two-thirds of the states. Let them decide to which they meant to give the authority claimed by two of their organs. Try as I might, I can't see a lot of room for judicial review in Jefferson's outlook. And in this light, it sort of still makes sense why he's so mad about Marbury 20 years after the fact. To him, Marshall was responsible for meddling judges, foisting their judgments on the states and people, and he calls such men sappers and miners of the foundation of the Republic. From Marshall's view, however... Jefferson's entire line of thought is wrong right out of the gate. For him, yes, the people are supreme, but union was a creation of the people, not the states. And the only Supreme Court decision that can rival Marbury in importance, one that we haven't discussed yet but will, McCullough v. Maryland, Marshall's unrelenting analysis grinds the Jeffersonian view into the dust. He wrote, the convention which framed the Constitution was indeed elected by state legislatures, but the instrument, when it came from their hands, was a mere proposal, without obligation or pretensions to it. It was reported to the then-existing Congress of the United States, with a request that it be submitted to a convention of delegates, chosen in each state by the people thereof, in order to form a more perfect union. But the people were at perfect liberty to accept or reject it and their act was final. It required not the affirmance, and could not be negatived by the state governments. The Constitution, when thus adopted, was of complete obligation, and bound the state sovereignties. The government of the Union, then, is emphatically and truly a government of the people, in form and in substance. It emanates from them. Its powers are granted by them and are to be exercised directly on them and for their benefit. Marshall once said that he had never allowed himself to be irritated 
by Mr. Jefferson's unprovoked and unjustifiable aspersions of my conduct and principles, which is a phrasing that almost immediately shows itself as untrue. Just as Jefferson was still complaining about Marshall near the end of his life, so too did Marshall complain about Jefferson until near the end of his. In an 1830 letter to Henry Lee, John expressed his displeasure with the content of a posthumous collection of letters that Jefferson's grandson had published, both for the philosophy they professed and for the unkind things they said about him. There is one remarkable passage that I want to share, where Marshall takes his correspondent to task for something he'd written in the previous letter. There is one paragraph in your letter from which I dissent entirely. You say, you must in fairness declare that you believe Mr. Jefferson's theoretical opinions on government are those most in accordance with the freedom and happiness of society that have ever been given to the world. On what, let me ask you, is this declaration founded? Not surely on his opinion that all political power originally resides in and must be derived from the people by their free consent and ought to be exercised for their happiness not from his opinions that rulers are accountable to the people for their conduct. These are common to all the people and statesmen of America. Mr. Jefferson's opinions on these subjects, though in accordance with the freedom and happiness of society, are not more so than have been given to the world by every patriot of the United States. The preeminence you bestow on him then must be sustained by something else, by something peculiar to himself not possessed in common with all his countrymen. What is this something? Is his opinion so frequently repeated and earnestly sustained that all obligations and contracts, civil and political, expire of themselves at intervals of about, as well as I can recollect, seventeen years, that to which you allude? Or is it his opinion, also frequently advanced, that a rebellion once in ten or twelve years is a wholesome medicine for the body politic, tending to invigorate it? In truth, I have been a skeptic on this subject from the time I became acquainted with Mr. Jefferson as Secretary of State. I have never believed firmly in his infallibility. I have never thought him a particularly wise, sound, and practical statesman. Nor have I ever thought those opinions, which were peculiar to himself, most in accordance with the freedom and happiness of society that have ever been given to the world. I have not changed this mode of thinking." There is also a deep irony to the different ways these two men viewed the unquestionable sovereignty of the American people. Jefferson, who advocated democracy, himself was an aristocrat and never mixed easily with the common man. Marshall, on the other hand, distrusted democracy, but was the one who had the common touch. Jefferson saw a strong central government as the greatest threat to the individual, while Marshall saw central government as the most important guarantor of individual liberty. Jefferson extolled the virtues of agriculture, while Marshall, who owned plenty of farmland, was cognizant of the importance of commerce and industry. And in the end, as Gene Smith puts it, Jefferson was at his best when articulating a philosophy of government, Marshall when applying one. Yet for all their differences, each represent a vital current in the American mainstream. Jefferson believed passionately in majority rule. Marshall, just as earnestly, feared majority tyranny. Jefferson was attached to liberty and equality. Marshall stood for the rule of law and a government of checks and balances. Jefferson tilted to the left and Marshall to the right. 
but between them they encompassed the vast center of the political spectrum. Regardless of their mutual distrust, the author of the Declaration of Independence and the man destined to become the guardian of the Constitution were each essential to the emerging American consensus. And that ultimately is as good a place as any to end today's discussion. Thank you all so much for listening. Before I sign off, I do have a list of specific people to thank and some spoil system job titles to announce. American Biography wants to thank David L., who is the new postmaster of Friday Harbor, Washington. Robbie M., the secretary of Poverty Eradication. Ryan M., the misinformation czar. Jerry L., director of the National Commission for the Preservation of William Henry Harrison Historical Sites and Documents, or the DNCPWHHHSD, for short. Matthew M., Deputy to the Assistant Director of the Biological Survey Bureau and Fish and Wildlife Coordinator. Bill F. is the Undersecretary of Constitutional Ablation. Robin P. is our new Chief Antiquarian of the National Archives and Records Administration. Zach T. is our newly announced Continental Chancellor. And Brent M. is the Undersecretary to the Overseer of Infrastructure Restabilization. And I also would like to thank Michael T., Sandra S., Jim D., Jeffrey K., and Brian and John. You guys are actually also qualified to get spoil system job titles too, so please shoot me an email at AmericanBiographyPodcast at gmail.com and we'll make it happen. Everyone else, you can please follow American Biography on Facebook or on Twitter at American underscore bio. And as one last thing, I would like to give a shout-out to the Agora Podcast of the Month, which is friend of the show, Ben Jacobs, Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation, which is a story about how Europe got modern. So make sure you check him out. It's really a great podcast. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Confidence starts with loving who you are. 
And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.